Well, good morning and welcome again one more time. My name is Dirk Pastor here at Encounter. And if this is your first time at Encounter Church or maybe just uh, church in general, it's a perfect Sunday to start, uh, to start attending with us because we're kicking off a new series today called Above the Noise. This series is all about silencing the voices that don't matter to tune into the one that does. Now, I, I want to I share an update from last week. A lot of you were here. Um, we finished this series tomorrow, today. And when we did, I asked everybody to, to fill out and to write on the connection cards and to turn it in, um, one decision, one promise, one commitment that you are making today that's going to lead to a more deliberate life tomorrow. And and we kind of collected all those, and we got such a huge stack of those that it made me a little bit worried about how we're going to follow through with that promise to like email them back to you in 51 weeks and counting, but that's a problem for like later us. We'll figure that out when the time comes. But I wanted to share something with you. Um, I feel one of those out as well, so I dug mine out out of the bunch, and I wrote something in here about, um, well, at the time, I wasn't really thinking about, you know, this week so much, so I I wrote down a a personal commitment or a personal decision that I made, and something delightfully vague, of course, about uh, uh, being more deliberate in my daily devotional life. But, like, what I had in my mind uh, behind that was to do one of these, like, read through the Bible in a year program. You know, a lot of you have heard of those, maybe some of you have done those, and I thought, like, this is the time, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do that thing in one year. That's check back. I'm going to check back in with me and I'm going to say, good job, Dirk, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, but really behind it was Zach, our worship director has been doing this for like six months. And I just I figured if Zach can do it, like, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just aspiring to Zach's greatness. But uh, so I, I dig in here and what was surprising about that, what was shocking to me, wasn't that it was difficult. I knew it was going to be hard. You know, I made this commitment to get up before the kids wake up, before the house is going, and like read the Bible, a number of chapters every single week or every single day, and that didn't happen at all this week, not one single time, but that didn't surprise me. What surprised me was that later on in the week, when I started playing catch-up, what surprised me was like this voice that came in and started, started kind of speaking to me. This is, it's like this kind of mental static or the, the noise, as we're going to call it throughout this series. But, but like what the noise was, was kind of whispering into my ear was like, Dirk, why is this so difficult for you? You ever have that? You know what I mean? Like, like why is this so, such a unique chance? Dirk, you're a, you're a pastor and you stand on stage and like talk about the Bible. You should be a little bit more excited to like dig in, to put everything else off and just spend time reading the Bible. Why is this such a challenge for you? And then it starts to ramp up from there. And, and the static, the noise, the, those, those voices start in and they say, you know, maybe if you, maybe if you were a better Christian, Maybe if you were a better follower of God, maybe if you were more like Zach, then everything would just be easier for you. Maybe you're somehow deficient. And maybe if you don't love God as quite as much as you think that you love God, and the voice says, the noise says, maybe God doesn't love you as much as you thought he loved you. Now that's where it, that's where it hits, right? I read somewhere earlier this week, it's one of those shaky sources that you probably have to double check, and I didn't, but um, be warned, uh, that, that people have, we have something like 60,000 thoughts every day, different thoughts, and somewhere, a heavy majority, somewhere around 80% of those are negative thoughts. So that's like 48,000 know, negative thoughts about ourselves. That's the noise. That's the mental static. That's the, the steady drip in our lives every single day, almost constantly telling you that you're not good enough, 
that you're not, that you're not uh, confident enough, that you're not brave enough, that you're not faithful enough to be loved by God or to be used by God. That, that's what I experience. That's the noise. That's the mental static. That's, that's the voices that we're trying to rise above. Okay, but this is the thing. I know I'm not alone in that because there's probably a few people in the room today that are like, I get that. You know, that's my life. I go to work and I go to work to deliver a quality product on time. And the thing is, I'm doing that. I'm getting it done. But all of the while, it's like part of me is just, I'm like dying all the time because I wonder, does anybody notice? Does anybody value what I'm doing? Does anybody even care? Does it make any difference? And the static, the noise, the voices creep up and they say, no. Nobody cares. Your time, your work, it doesn't matter. And pretty soon after a steady drip of that, you start to believe it. And you start to believe it, worst of all, that you start to believe that God believes that. And so I'm here today, and I want to tell you, that's a lie. That's static. That's noise. Those are lies, those voices that creep in to say that, but it almost doesn't matter because I worry it's too late. And the wedge is already driven in. And so, so today, what we have to do, today what we have to do is look at that wedge and to say, and to expose it for the lie that it is. And to see where it truly comes from. And to do that, we need to, we need to silence all the voices, like we said, that don't matter, to tune into the one that does. And to do that, we're going to go to a place in the Bible where the very first lie is, is first believed. This is Genesis chapter 3. There's Bibles under the chairs in front of you. If you're in the front, it's under your chair. Genesis chapter 3, easy to find. Not only will we give you the page number, it's like right in the beginning. Like, starts off in the beginning. And then a next page over, Genesis chapter 3. God had just created the world and the, the universe, everything in it, out of nothing, just spoke into the darkness. And I think it's going to be helpful for us to know that when he does that, when, when he did that, after, after he made every single thing, he looked at it and he said, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he got to one aspect, one element of the creation that he looked at and he said, it is, it's not just good, it is very it's very good. And when he created Adam and Eve, loosely translated to man and woman, he created these two. And he said, it is very good. And then God looks at them and says, now they don't just have the image or bear the image of God. He looked at them and he said, they are, we are the image of God here on earth, which is a pretty daunting task. But anyway, that's where the state of things are. They're living in the Garden of Eden and everything is perfectly sublime and they have more than enough until Genesis 3 happens. And we're going to dig into the story this is the temptation. It says this. Genesis 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the animals the Lord God had made. And just a note on the word crafty, because it's a fun one. I think it really goes to highlight just the nuance and the complexity of the story that we're reading. Most of the time you see something like, a serpent is crafty. You think he's, he's sly, he's cunning. It's just this is all bad thing all the time. And especially as it relates to those wedges the, the static, the noise, the voices that, that wedge in between us and God, I think we have to understand about how this works. Because when we're expecting something that's all bad all the time, we're going to miss what the actual wedge is. Because as God created the universe, as I just said, after, after he made everything, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And so when the serpent comes up and the ser serpent is described as, as crafty, we have to also see not to expect like this, this evil 
cackle, laugh kind of thing that's just, it's obvious. And they're like, I know that this is bad news. You know, the dark hallway, don't go in there. Like, we, we, we know to expect the obvious, but this word crafty is used tons of times throughout the Bible. In the book of Proverbs especially, it's used a couple dozen times, only it's not translated as crafty very often. It's the same word is usually translated as something like wise or prudent, and, and so you have these, these proverbs, these windoms, the wisdom sayings that say something like, well, the simple just believe anything, but the crafty, the prudent, double-check their work. You, you, you have this sense in which this, this, it isn't just all bad all the time. But he's digging in here, and we can start to see that there's a nuance to it, that, 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 that the wedge, the voices, the static, the noise, Bad decisions, evil, isn't readily apparent on the outside. Sometimes it, it's disguised as good. All right, the serpent is crafty. This is what he says. He says to the woman, now, heavy statement here. Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? On one hand, it's like there's so many, like, errors in the thinking here. It's, it's hard to know where to begin. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Okay, of course not. Of course God didn't say we can't eat from any tree. I mean, no, of course he said you, gotta eat, you can't eat from this tree right in the middle of the garden. That's what God said. Oh, speaking of that tree, like you can see the direction, this line that the serpent is going then to guide the conversation. That's the first one that's just kind of like, he's crafty, right? He, he's sly. No, but, but more than that, it's this, uh, we got a yellow on the screen. Did God really say, did he really, really Really say it. Because it's how these bad decisions, like how the noise works, how the mental static works, how the wedge works, is asking that question, really? Is that really true? It's not like an outright assault of everything that we know and believe and we love and what we learned growing up maybe or what, or what God spoke to us and told us when we read the Bible last time we sat down with him. It's not like an outright assault on that belief. But it's just like planting a seed of doubt that it's going to grow into a full-on wedge between you and God, between Adam and Eve and God in this story. Did he really say it? Now, the other one is probably the most important one for most of us in the room right now. So there's a chance that you're going to hear this, you're not going to listen to anything else, and that's okay because this is how important it is. It's a simple word when he says, did God really say it? Sometimes the most important word in a line isn't the word that's written there, but it's the word that isn't. For example, up until this point in the chapter previous, almost a dozen times, the story was unfolding about the creation and the Lord God did this and the Lord God did that and then the Lord God came back into it and then the Lord God and it's so many times it's repeated. It's almost like just shorten it up to just God, would you? Like why do you have to like make that redundant statement all the time? The Lord God, the Lord God. And in fact, if you look at the Bible in, in most translations, if you like see it on the page, oftentimes the word Lord is, is like smaller letters, but they're all uppercase the, uh, for the word Lord. And then God is just, it's capitalized, but it's just normal. 
And, and you kind of look at it on the first hand, especially if maybe you're just sitting down with it or if you haven't noticed it before, it almost looks like a, like a typo. But what the translators have done is to say there's something significant about this. There's something special. And you have to know what it is, especially if you're going to identify what the wedge is that's just about to come between you and God. What's special about that word, Lord, is that the word God simply means Elohim. It's a Hebrew word. It doesn't matter. Don't write that down please. But it's a word that simply means God as in a title. So like he's vice president of operations or something like that, right? It's a, it's a title. It's not a specific person, but it's kind of a position to hold. That's the way Elohim, that's the way that God functions. It's, it's more of a title and an idea than it is a person. However, that's not the way God operates. That's not the way God relates to his people in the Bible. That's not our story. That's the other guys. That's someone else. God in the Bible chooses to relate, not just as an idea but, or an outside being, Elohim, but God relates as a person. And he goes, in order for you to get how central this idea is, I'm going to give you my name. It's not like a title, like Elohim or Adonai. It's not one of these like, Lord, it, it, my, I'm going to give you my specific name that is sacred to me and special to me. I'm going to give you my name like introducing instead of like a pastor of Encounter Church. No, no, no Dirk. Or, or Donna, or, you know, Derek, or I don't know why they all start with Ds, but like you get the, you get the idea. Like it's, it's significant, it's unique to just me. And so God, in the story of the Bible, this is important, is that he gives his people, us, his own name. Now the name itself is not pronounceable, which is kind of a cool thing when God, you know, hands it over. We just get consonants. It's uh, Y-H-W-H, you know, so people just kind of plug things in. Uh, they plug in actually the vowels from the word Adonai. Anyway, it's, so Yahweh is like what you say it, but the actual name is, you can't pronounce it because there's no gaps, there's no breath, there's no sound in it, which is a whole different point altogether. But, but the point is, in the creation story, it isn't just the title or the idea that does things, that acts. If you're, if you're following me, it's also the person, the Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. And the very first time in this story that just God is referenced, just the idea of God, just the, the status, the position of God outside of the person of God is referenced, is here, right here, when the serpent creeps in and says, did God, really say, the wedge that he drove in was a wedge to separate, was first, in order to separate the people of God from the person of God, the the wedge that he first put in was to separate the person of God from the idea of God. And just like probably so many of us, Eve falls for it. And she says, the the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit, from the trees in the garden, but, and I think it just breaks God's heart, but God, not the Lord God, it's the first time someone other than the serpent said it, but God, the position, the idea did say, we must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you'll die. Now, that was an add-on. God didn't say that, but she tucks it in there, and you know he's going he's gonna to pounce on that. But it just kind of come back to this. She fell for it. She fell for the, for the gap that there's somehow a, a difference between, between the person of God and the idea of God. 
And the reason why I think that's so important and so worthy of a rabbit trail to go down with you this morning is because there's probably somebody in the room today who's just about ready to give up on God because he's nothing more than an idea in your life. Maybe this is your last weekend, your last Sunday, and you're like, this is the last chance. I'm going to give him one more shot. He has to show up. God has to make a difference and and prove himself in my life. Otherwise, I am out. And I I want you to know, and maybe it's just on your way out, but I want you to know that, that when you think of God, and he's an idea to be grasped, or when you think about God, and he's simply a set of principles or, or a rule book to follow or not follow. And if you walk away from that God, I need you to know that you are not walking away from the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity. Amen? <laughs> That's not our story. It is critical to the understanding of Christianity, of our faith, that when we worship, we don't worship an idea or a set of principles or a rule book to follow. Although there is wisdom We worship a person. We don't just worship God. We worship the Lord God. He has given us his name because he wants to walk with us hand in hand through all of life together. That's our story. That's who God is. And you know, if you're listening to the static, to the noise If there's a wedge that you can see developing and you almost can't help it between you and God, I think it might be worth revisiting revisiting the story of Genesis, the story all throughout the Bible, in fact, and start to reclaim God not as an idea, but also as as a person who longs to be in connection and community with each one of us. This is the starting place. And the story, the story goes on. It gets worse, though, before it gets better. Verse 4 the serpent picking up on that, uh, on that exaggeration that the woman told, that Eve told. The serpent picks up and says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be just like him. Don't you want to be just like him? He probably wants you to be just like him as well. And you can see how she, they fall for it. You'll be just like God. In, in essence, what the serpent is, is subtly suggesting, and maybe you've received that message too, God is holding out on you in some way. God, God is like holding something good back, something good in life to be experienced that he doesn't, he doesn't want for you to experience. And so, and so he's holding back on you. And worst of all, he's giving to someone else. He's showering somebody else. They get a promotion. They get to go to Mexico for the second time this month. Right? He's holding back on me. Don't you want to be like God? Knowing good and evil? Don't you want to know? I mean, good stuff, sure. I mean, everything is like flat, it's sublime, it's perfect, but you don't even know that. You don't even know how good things are. You don't know how good the mountain is until you've been in the valley. Don't you want to go to that place? Don't you want to know loss? Don't you want to know tragedy? Don't you want to know severe and crippling pain if she's never known it before, if they've never known it before? Maybe I do. Maybe, maybe God's holding out on me. 
And you can just imagine God watching this and just his heart is just wrenching because, because he knows he wants a good creation, but he also wants a free creation. And so he's watching this take place and he's just seeing all the pain and the tragedy and the loss start to develop as the, the first couple, as they start to, to consider, maybe I want to know. Maybe I want to go to those dark places. Friends, maybe it's because I've got like little kids at home, and uh, but like I just imagine, you know, my my four-year-old like climbing up on the back of the couch and like looking over, and I can see he wants to jump, right? You know, maybe he's got like the little wings on or something. He's like looking over, and he wants. I mean, don't do it, buddy. Don't do it. And then he does, and he lands and like bumps his head, and there's like you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then like Colin is upset too, uh, but. Right? He like, you know, when he calms down, I think, you know, buddy, why, why'd you jump? Why'd you do it? And you know the answer. He goes, I just wanted to see what, what would happen. I see the couples. Why'd you do it? Why'd you reach out? Why'd you bite it? I just wanted to know what, what would happen. They found out what happened. They found out what happened. Next line. Verse 6 is where, where all the action is in the story. When the woman saw that the, ver, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, she, um, and he ate it. So the two of them together in this, they're complicit together. Um, so she, she, took, she saw, she took, and she gave. It's just kind of an interesting side note. You know, and maybe a helpful one as you just avoid and block out the mental static and the noise, the voices that draw you away from God to tune into the one that does. And maybe it's just helpful to notice that there's so much in this story, so much detail in this story about like the, the temptation and the struggle back and forth, about the, the wrestling with the serpent and wrestling with their beliefs in God. There's so much in the story about like struggling before the act is ever done. By the time the decision is made to act out of disobedience, to listen to the voices, to, to, to put it into action the lies that they're told, by the time the action gets around, it just goes that quick. You know, so I just, there's going to be a season in your life when you will wrestle and that I will wrestle with who I believe God is. Maybe it's that question of wondering, is God holding out on me? There's a season in life when when I might wrestle if all those truths that I once held so closely, if, if they're all even true after all, or if, the, or if the static, the noise is right. And there's a wedge there. There's a season that wrestles. And I just, I want you to maybe see in this story that that, that, that season of wrestling could be, in fact, the long season. And the decision to act, the decision to jump is that quick and just as quick. I want you to know it might start to hurt. In the story, this is what it looks like in verse 7. It goes, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. <laughs> and, so they, and so they sewed fig leaves together, and they, they made coverings for themselves. I just, you know, I got, this is a, this is a type of fig that I got. I'm, don't worry, this illustration isn't going to go too far. But <laughs> I'm a little offended that you laughed so hard at that. But anyway, um, you just like kind of like imagine this is a much even bigger one, so for demonstration purposes. But uh, you just kind of see like they went and they hid and they like sewed fig leaves together to like make these like coverings, right? And you're like, what do you mean they sewed things together? Like 
a fig leaves are terrible for covering, you know? And, and so, like, this one is obvious to the first readers of the story, kind of in the context of the day, and the actual, you know, time and place historical. They're like, fig leaves, <laughs> like, you've got to be kidding me. They probably picked the worst thing around them in order to try to, like, sew it all together to, like, make some of these terrible coverings. One commentator wrote about the passage, he said that this, that this story, that their action and reaction of, of what happened, just, it smacks of urgency and desperation as they like run and hide from God and from each other, just hiding, hiding their shame and their nakedness. Many of you know the story a little, a little bit after that is, is, is God is, is coming through the garden, it says, in the, in the cool of the evening. And he calls out. He calls out for his, his friends, his companions, Adam and Eve, his, his also creation. And Adam calls out and says, we're hiding. We're hiding because we're naked and we know it. We're ashamed. And just that line lingers with me when God, the loving Father, calls back to his children in hiding, and he says, who told you that you are naked? In a sense, he says, who lied to you? Who was it? This got kind of real with me as I read the story, but um, a number of years ago, there was a, there was a dad who, who wrote as a, as a blog piece, just kind of a reflection on uh, his life and, and this story in particular. He's a, he's a good dad. He gets his Saturday afternoon. It's a hot day. He gets his daughter, you know, a six-year-old little girl, gets a swimsuit on. It's uh, going to be cold later, so they bundle all up and, like, cover up and, and clothes on top of that, right? And they head outside, and he's, you know, going to turn on the sprinkler and play in it. And uh, he gets the sprinkler on, and she just bolts right outside the front door. He, she bolts right into the sprinkler and starts playing. Clothes and everything, just soaked head to toe, right? And she's laughing, and she's playing, and she's dancing, and she doesn't have a single care in the world. And the guy, the dad, he looks at that, and he goes, it's almost like a slice of heaven. You know, a garden reclaimed is happening in the far patch in my backyard. As they just see somebody, just this, this little girl playing with, with sheer joy on her face and in carelessness about what is happening around her, just this sublime and perfect moment. Until the cool of the evening sets in and he shuts off the sprinkler because it's getting cold outside and, and he calls her in and he, he calls her over and says, you know, honey, we got to get you out of these soaking wet clothes. You got a suit on. Let me at least just put a warm towel over you. And immediately she recoils and she says, dad, dad, no, not in front of everybody. Who's everybody? The neighbors still in their houses? Honey, it's just me out here. And more than that, this dad looks at his little girl who doesn't want to be seen outside wearing a swimsuit. The dad looks down like every dad, good dad does, and he says to his little girl, he says, who taught you to be ashamed of your body? Who taught you that you are somehow not good enough? Who told you that you were, that you were deficient in some way? Who told you that in some way you are not absolutely perfect? Who told you that? Because they were lying to you. They were lying to you, don't you see? 
But now she didn't believe her father's voice. And at that moment, for that dad, it was as if, as if this perfect, innocent serenity had all at once just been shattered, never to be reclaimed. And there was nothing that he can do. He was helpless against it because his little girl, he could pinpoint the moment that she believed the lies that the culture, that the world was telling her. He couldn't do anything about it. And I think just for a moment, maybe we have to get real and to realize that that in some way, in some shape or form, that we have believed the lies the, the mental static, the voices inside of our head and otherwise that have told us that we're somehow deficient, that, that we're somehow too unfaithful or, or, or too flabby or too bony or too, or too pale or, or too altogether imperfect to be loved by God or to be used by God. And friends, that is a lie that is told and the Father is, is walking through the garden in each one of our lives, and He's calling out to us, and He's saying, you don't have to be ashamed to walk with me, to believe me, to listen to my voice speaking truth into your life, that you are loved not for anything that you have done at all, but because of who I am. In fact, there is nothing, nothing that can ever separate the two of us and those who are in me, in Christ Jesus. And God takes it a step further, friends. He takes it a step further yet. In verse 21, in Genesis 3, he says this, that the Lord God, knowing that figs are a terrible covering, in verse 21, he says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And a thoughtful reader of the passage just reads that and says, where'd that come from? What had to die in the garden so that that couple could have something to wear, could have their shame covered? This story is the first time, is the first time in the biblical story that we are introduced to the idea that that God would have to sacrifice some good thing in order to cover our shame. That in fact some animal would have to die in order for our sin, for our shame to be covered up, to be hidden. And that, friends, that started a system. And as you read through the Bible, maybe you're in one of those plans too, and you get to Leviticus and you get to these long stories about how they bring in the lambs, they bring in the sheep, the animals, and they systematically sacrifice them and sacrifice them and sacrifice them. And as the blood rolls off from the hill in Jerusalem in the temple, the image is seared into their mind that, that our shame, that the believing those lies around us has a cost associated to it, and they will never forget it. This is the first time that God would make a sacrifice to cover our shame, but it will not be the last. Because God himself has looked at the sacrifice and has said, if there is a debt to be paid to cover our sin and our shame, I will step in and to pay it on behalf of you. And Jesus Christ says, I will be the one. My blood will be the blood that will pay for the penalty of sin of shame, to cover you and I. 
I will be the once and for all sacrifice so that someday together we can walk through the garden once again. Earthly father looks at his little girl and says, there's nothing I can do to reclaim, to reclaim the innocence that was shattered that day. But our heavenly father knows that he can put it all together again. That in Jesus Christ, he can put it all back together again. Friends, I invite you to go into your weeks this week. And go in with a confidence knowing that your shame is covered. That your sin is covered. That though there's mental static all around you, that there is, there is noise all around, that there are voices driving a wedge between you and God, that God himself has not stopped speaking, that God continues to speak to this day to everyone, guiding, sometimes challenging, sometimes affirming. But friends, the good news is God still speaks just above the noise. But you just stand up. Let's pray to that God who's speaking here today and this week. Gracious God, our Father, Lord, we come to you and in a sense we listen to what you have to tell us, that we listen to your voice. God, make it clear to us this week that we have nothing to fear, that we have nothing to be afraid of, that whatever wedge is separating us from you, God, that you will climb any mountain, you will overcome any odds to make your way to us as you have before. God, we celebrate a God, we celebrate you, a God who is a God of second chances. That if we've come in this place thinking that you're little more than an idea or a set of rules to follow, that God, we're reminded that you are so much more, that you are a person to be in community with, to be, to be befriended, to guide us through the garden of life. God, make yourself true and apparent this week. Make your voice louder than any other noise that might surround you. In your name we pray, amen.